Today is January 26, 2019, and this is the first episode of podcast in the year 2019. And we're very lucky to have a very special returning guest, Nadine Ahmad, who had uh, previously um, graciously visited us with his presence, um, uh, doing a brief primer on the Sasanian dynasty of the Persian Empire. Uh, but today, we are going to um, take into a different time and place in history to cover a very little known of the Silk Road. Um, Nadim, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And I had no idea I would have the honor of being your first 2019 guest. So thank you. Oh, like the, the pleasure is all ours. Like I, I have been um, wanting to get you on the show to talk about Sogdians forever because <laughs> because I know that's <laughs> a, a important part of what you do. Um, can you just like give us a little brief introduction of how, um, you know, how you got into, you know, like what you do and how you um, got interested in the Sogdian history? Uh, sure thing. So I run the um, Eron Uturon Living History Group. We're a uh, UK-based living history reenactment group, um, and we focus on the um, ancient and early medieval cultures um, of Iran and Central Asia. And in particular, right now, we are really focusing hard on the Sogdians. Um, so for those of you who don't know, living history is essentially where we dress up in old clothes and talk to the public and occasionally hit each other with bits of metal, um, depending on how many of us there are and how many people are watching. Um, although our living history group has taken a slightly different turn. Uh, we do fewer public events these days and more um, more blogging soon going to get into the YouTube scene. Um, in terms of crafts, we do a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, I'm producing more or less a weekly calligraphy piece written in the Sogdian language, sometimes Parthian or Middle Persian too. Um, and yeah, all the crafts, all the costume, um, all that kind of stuff, and lots of kebabs, of course. So you got you got to hook us up with some of those pictures of you in costume because they look great. I, I saw them on Twitter and Facebook, and l let me just say they're magnificent. Oh, thank you. Um, Sogdian costume is magnificent. It's kind of what got me interested in the Sogdians in the first place. Their visual culture is just stunning. And it's leagues ahead of pretty much everyone else in Eurasia at this point. Um, so for, for those of you who don't know, and I suspect a lot of your audience does, but let's go all the way back to basics. Um, Sogdiana is in a part of the world um, not that well studied right now, and it's kind of a bit of a backwater. If you look at a map of Eurasia and point right at the middle of it, you end up in Tajikistan and the eastern parts of Uzbekistan. Um, and that's the heart of Sogdiana. It resided along a valley of the river Zarafshan. Um, and you can actually see the river valley on a satellite image. It's the green bit surrounded by the yellow bits of the arid steppe lands. And in here, um, you had civilizations forming well before the period we're going to be talking about, well before the early medieval period. But the Sogdian civilization really flourishes um, bet really between the 5th and the 7th and 8th centuries AD. Um, you have these spectacular wall paintings from their cities. You have these amazing finds of textiles and, uh, and, and woodwork, wood carvings especially, um, amazing metalwork as well that was exported all across the Eurasian world. And these guys were pretty important uh, diplomatically and commercially in a 
economic phenomenon that we in the modern world call the Silk Road. Um, of course, that's a completely modern name. The ancients would not have called it that. But speaking of which, I mean, Sogdians basically they made the Silk Road, right? I mean, like that. I never knew how important you know the part they play in the Silk Road until I watch a Japanese NHK documentary um, on Sogdians and Silk Road. Maybe I don't know around two thousand. Uh, 2005 or 04. Anyway, not not that long ago. Um, and and I was just completely taken back because, uh, you know, pe- pe- nowadays, like uh, when you mention Silk Road, you know, people may think of China, you know, some parts of Central Asia, uh, Iran, Middle East, uh, and even like uh, Rome and um, Byzantine Empire, right? But people. Uh, very people know about Sogdians, but in fact, Sogdians merchant, uh, they are kind of like the backbone of the Silk Road, right? Is that a fair characterization? Oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I would wager a bet that if you mention the Silk Road to people today, first of all, they would think of that um, illicit drugs website. Um, but second of all, they would probably think of... <laughs> yeah. Second of all, they would probably think of China as one big entity on one end of it and Europe or the Roman Empire or whoever it is at that particular period in time as one big entity on the other side of it and a big black hole of nothing in the middle. Um, most, uh, you know, we think of exchange between China and Rome, China and Europe, whatever, but we usually miss out the middlemen who were, first of all, more important. Um, second of all, had more interactions with either of the guys on either side. Um, we often forget that overland trade in the ancient world was difficult, it was costly, it was dangerous, and it was not that well done. Not that often done, sorry. Um, sea routes being much more common. Um, and, you know, for long distance trade to happen between Rome and China, Sure, it happened, but it wasn't a major part of the economy for it to happen. You had lots of small distance trade. For example, the Sogdians went to China, you know, the Khotanis went to China, um, the Sogdians went to Eastern Europe, whatever. Um, Sogdians didn't get much to Iran. They might have gone to Khorasan, but not further south. And then, you know, they had the Persians go to the Romans and, and so forth. It's, it's mostly local trade, short distance circuits um, between neighboring cities, uh, neighboring provinces, that sort of area. Very few people make the journey between China and Rome or China and Europe. And you know, the guys who did, they become famous. And that's where we get the notion that people made the journey. It's because they're the ones that have been recorded because it was exceptional. Right, right, because then everybody, yeah, everybody knows Marco Polo, right? Yeah and, yeah, and and that's why people tend to forget that that is not the norm. <laughs> that's, exactly. that is the exception. And and what? Uh, so, like, I yeah, I, I think this on this episode we have a chance to set the record straight here. You know, unlike the the real uh, the real people and power behind. Uh, this this trade network is this very important um, chapter in the world history that's often ignored because you know we're uh, of you know today's world you know it's either uh, you know Eurocentric or Sinocentric right because that's where we get a lot of our um, available uh, 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 written textual sources right you know Chinese and 
and I guess Latin or or European languages are just more accessible. Um, so so like you say, there's a black giant black hole in the middle, and that's where you come in, Nadine. You 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 are here to fill us in, fill that giant black hole. Sure thing. So our story starts in the Achaemenid era. So the Achaemenid Persians were the first Persian Empire. Um, you may know them from the guys who lost to the Greeks in the first Greek-Persian War, and who then lost to the Greeks again uh, during Alexander's conquest. Um, Sogdiana was a province of the Achaemenid Empire, but it wasn't really that well populated. It's kind of not going to lie, it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, and there are steppe nomads just here north, and they will raid your city and, and you know, take all your products and rape your women and kill your men and whatever, you know, whatever nomads do, right? Um, it was actually governed from Bactria. That's how unimportant Sogdiana was. Um, and Sogdiana and Bactria are two eastern Iranian provinces. They're very, very, very geographically close. One of them is on the northern side of the Oxus. The other one's on the southern side of the Oxus. That, that's the main difference. Um, so in today's world, uh, Bactria is, would be where basically Afghanistan is, right? Afga yeah, it's basically Afghanistan and I suppose the southernmost tips of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Um, but yeah, it's predominantly Afghanistan. It's the big mountainy country that no one manages to conquer ever. Um, and, yeah. and the Sogdiana is just to the north of that. Exactly, just to the north. Um, okay, sorry for my interruption. Please go on. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, go for it. Um, yeah, so um, the Achaemenids obviously fell to Alexander the Great, or Alexander the Accursed, as the Persians called him. And, um, you know, Sogdian and Bactria start to take off in a bit more bit more of a sense. So they become a bit more urbanized. They start minting their own coins under Greek rule, um, mainly under the Seleucids and later the Greco-Bactrians. Um, and they introduced their styles of city planning, which remained for centuries, and their styles of coins, which also remained for centuries. Um, and of course, their style of art. Um, now, Hellenistic art sort of gives rise to Gandharan art, which is a major influencer of Sogdian art as well. Um, Gandharan art mainly takes root during the Kushan years, but it's got strong Hellenistic or strong Greek foundations as well. And it is absolutely beautiful. If you get a chance, Google it. Um, or better than that, um, you can hop down to the British Museum to have a look at their stuff. Um, Incidentally, I found the best collection of Gondaran arts actually in Rome, or the best collection that I've seen in the Oriental Art Gallery in Rome. Um, definitely worth checking out, just as a tangent. Anyway, back to the story. Um, so the Greek kingdoms fall to the nomads of the north, like everyone tends to in this period, this area. And they're supplanted by the Saka kingdoms in Bactria, and later on the Uyghur, who become the Kushans in Bactria and northern India. And in Sogdiana, they're supplanted by a group, a nomadic confederation called the Kangju. And the Kangju are centered around uh, Chach, the Chach oasis. Uh, Chach is modern day Tashkent. It, it, it's pretty much the same place. It actually means the same, same thing, right? Because Chach, I believe means uh, city of stone and Tashkent literally means i believe it means a, a storm fortress right or storm city stone city uh yeah I, I believe so um i think i think Tashkent is a distortion of Chachkent, which is the sogdian name for the place um Kent means city in in sogdian um so all the places that have kent at the end like uh, Pykend and uh, Yarkand and of course Panjakand, of course. They, they all have Sogdian names. Oh, wow. Okay. I did not know that. That's okay. It's great. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, a bit of etymology for you. Um, yeah, so, so the Kangju are living in Sogdiana at this point, and the Kangju are sort of vassals or tributaries of the Kushans and eventually get absorbed into the Kushan state. Um, and the Kushans are big city builders and they're big painters. Um, they were originally nomads, but they really take to settle life really well. And uh, the Kushans do a lot of very important things to the Iranian world. Um, namely, they invent Iranian royal iconography. Um, so a lot of the things that we associate with Persian kingship um, from the Sasanian era, like the crowns, the globes, the shoulder pom-poms, halos and stuff, they're all Kushan innovations. And uh, they also spread religious iconography. Um, so the Kushans are really synchronistic. They mix and match all the religions in the area. They mix Greek religions with Iranian religions, uh, with Indian religions. And so you get a big merge on their coins. Um, for example, you get these Iranian gods and they're depicted in an Indian fashion. A good example is, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is, a, is a wind deity called Wish. Um, who later becomes Wesh Parkar in Sogdian. Um, he's depicted like Shiva. He has a trident and a bow and Indian clothing, um, but it's an Iranian god. Um, this will become important later uh, when we look at Sogdian paintings. Um, this is one feature of, uh, you know, Central Asia and, and particularly of Sogdiana, right? It's because it's a it's always like a, a, a mixture, kind of melting pot of different cultures. Yeah, take everything and mix it together. It got the influence from like the Iranian plateau. You got the uh, and from the south, the, the the Indian civilization, and and even even some from the east. You know, further afield from China. So it's, from China, it, yeah, yeah. So it's a very interesting eclectic mix of cultures. And uh, sorry, I, I interrupted again, please. Uh, oh, you're fine. And and this eclectic mix certainly shows up a lot in Sogdian paintings of the 5th to, 5th to the 8th centuries. And also for the people who are more familiar with the Chinese history, um, so the Kusan originally, they were known as Yuezi uh, or Zouzi in, in China. Um, they were basically defeated by the Hans. When the when Xiongnu or the Hongnu uh, start their rise in Mongolia, so they defeated the the Yuezi Confederation and the Yuezi people. They migrated uh, basically west, all the way west to Central Asia, where they conquer uh, previously Greek cities, and and that's how they found um, <coughs> founded the Kusan Empire. Sorry, okay, not for exactly. my um well, it's fine because I garbled those Greek pronunciations, those those Chinese pronunciations. So I'll, uh, I'll 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 leave that in your field. Um, yeah. So Kushans, um, Kushans are a big deal. They invent a lot of iconography for the Iranian world. They invent a lot of religious symbolism for the Iranian world. Um, they, um, they, you know, they they sort of bring Indian, Iranian, Central Asian, Chinese things all in a melting pot in Bactria and Sogdiana. And they really start urbanizing Sogdiana. They build forts, forts and stuff there. They start wall paintings. Um, not in a big way. There's the occasional religious wall painting, um, but they certainly exist. Um, and Kushan costume is probably the predecessor of the fabulously decorated Sogdian costume that you'll see in all of my photos. Um, 
Now, the Kushans don't last too long, unfortunately. They're supplanted in Iran by the Sasanians and in India by the Gupta dynasty, and then they kind of just disappear. The Sasanians set up a, a cadet branch called the Kushano Sasanians, who are allied with the Sasanians, may or may not be completely independent, not entirely sure. They rule in Bactria for a little while. And then you have waves and waves and waves of invasions of nomads from the north, uh, the Iranian Huns. Now, there's a lot of different groups of Huns that set up camp in Bactria, um, but in Sogdiana, there's only really two. The first of all are the Kidarites, um, who appear in the 4th century, and they take over most of Sogdiana. Um, and you actually have remnants of Kidarite rule as early as the um, as early as the ninth as sorry as late as the ninth century. Um, there's a certain king of Usrushana called Haidar in Arabic sources, and Haidar is probably a Arabization of the term Kedar, which or Kedar, which is that that's the Kidarites, right? Um, the Kidarites in Sogdiana are later supplanted by the Heftalites, who first invade Bactria and then cross the river north into Sogdiana, and uh, then they take over the area. Now, the Heftalites are not very good friends with the Sasanians, and they fight lots and lots and lots of wars. But what they do do is they expand all across the steppe and across Central Asia and into the Tarim Basin, and with them spreads the Sogdians. And we set up, we see the spread of Sogdian merchant colonies um, setting up in Western China, and they bring their art with them. Um, so we have these really cool funerary couches and tombs and, and uh, sarcophagi of these Sogdian merchants who'd traveled east um, to seek riches along the so-called Silk Road, trading stuff back and forth. Um, this, these Sogdian merchants, they've depicted themselves like kings. So they're they're hunting, they're having banquets, they're wearing crowns, and they have this royal halo in quite a lot of their um, quite a lot of their depictions. Um, this sort of this practice of the Sogdian funerary tombs kind of stops with the Tang Dynasty when they start to centralize things. And this uh, just before this, you have the rise of the Gupturks in the steppe, which ousted the Heftalites from Sogdiana. And now the Gupturks love the Sogdians. The Sogdians become the main diplomats and the main merchants and the main you know settled people to the nomadic Turks. And there's a big uh, you know, really great symbiosis between the Turks and the Sogdians, um, where the Turks formed the military and the Sogdians formed the diplomatic and the economic and the the, the cultural. Um, the Sogdians kind of retain some independence um, so long as they kind of are subservient to the Turks. Um, so Samarkand becomes its own city-state. Bukhara becomes its own city-state. Maymur, which is probably near Panjikans, becomes its own city-state. Uh, there are actually nine in total, um, spread across the Zarafshan Valley in the broader Transoxiana area. Um, and this is the heyday of the Sogdian culture. This is when wall paintings flourish, when silverware flourishes, wood carvings flourish, um, and the Sogdians you know, go as far east as Dunhuang, or probably further east, and as far west as, uh, as, as the Crimea. And, and Sogdians, they're a sedentary culture, right? They're, they're, they're urban urban uh, culture. They, they, they live in cities and they carry on trade. You know, they, the most famous uh, Sogdian city is, of course, Samarkand. Um, yeah. And uh, um, I, don't, I don't know if, if, if Bukhara is considered... Uh, is Bukhara a Sogdian city? Is Bukhara, is Bukhara a Sogdian city? Uh, that is the source of some arcane debate and discussion. Um, yes and no. Um, 
so on the one hand, they spoke Sogdian. Uh, they wrote in a variant of Sogdian, although the alphabet's a little bit different. Um, on the other hand, they had a very, very, very different set of um, uh, different way of governing their province. So, um, Samarkand, Panjakant, Maimur, Osrishana, etc. They were kingdoms, but they didn't really have a strong king, and the kings would be uh, voted in or voted out by the nobility and the merchant class and anybody who was wealthy enough to, you know, oust the. So, kind of like uh, Greek. Yeah, Greek city-states is a good analogy, actually. Um, Bukhara is a bit different. It's a lot more centralized. It has a dynasty where the uh, rulership passes from father to son, or in one instance, a, a father to a wife and then to the son. Um, and um, their religion's a little bit different. Their coinage is very different. And this is probably because Bukhara just sits that little bit closer to Iran, and Bukhara was probably a part of the Sasanian, um, Sasanian Empire for a century or so in the 3rd and 4th centuries, whereas places like Samarkand and Panjakant and Chach, really, they never were. Um, yeah, Bukhara, maybe, maybe not. I, I class it as Sogdian because it's part of the Zerafshan Valley, and uh, there was enough interactions between Bukhara and Samarkand um, to really, you know, count it. Diplomatically, they were allied in a war against the Arabs in the eighth century. So, yeah, and also the Chinese count the Bukhara as Sogdian, so that that's good enough. Yeah, because it, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's close enough, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because in, in China, the 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 name for the for Sogdians are Zhao Wu Xin or the nine clans of nine, yeah, and I don't know where, where the name Zhao Wu came from, but 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 so so that nine clans r- roughly correspond to the nine city states in in Sogdiana, and Bukhara is one of them, and and uh, and the Bukhara and 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 the people. So in, in China, the people uh, they have different uh, naming system for each Sogdian city, so. Bukhara will be called An, whereas uh, uh, Samarkand, I believe, is Khan. And so, so somebody from uh, Bukhara, who like a merchant from Bukhara who resides in China, might take a surname of An. That's where. Um, so the that's An where. Lushan. Yes, there's a famous Chinese uh, <laughs> rebel, and An Lushan got his name because. Uh, you know, his father or adopted father is supposedly uh, be originally from Bukhara, um, and 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 Anlusan is an interesting case, which we'll talk about later. But he's actually half Sogdian and half Turk. His his father is, is indeed, Sogdian. yeah. His father is Sogdian and his mother is Turk, and that that kind of just personifies the very close relationship. Uh, of Sogdians and the, the Gulf Turks, and and the um, and and I guess Sogdian always had, uh, like you say, even back from the day of he- Heptalites, they always had some kind of ambient symbiotic relationship with the uh, with the nomadic with nomads. Uh, exactly. nom- yeah. nomadic rulers of the steppe, right? Because the the I guess the, the steppe people like uh, Heptalites and the Gulf Turks, they. They originally, you know, they, they, they came from the steppe. They, they prefer to live in tents. Uh, they, they, even though they're the overlords of the uh, urban centers like Samarkand, but they, they largely left Sogdians to rule their own affairs. They, they just 
very content to collect tributes, right? Exactly, exactly. And it was a very close relationship. Um, there's a Sogdian city in southern Kazakhstan, and inside the borders of the city, you have typical Sogdian third century pot- pottery. And just outside the borders of the city, you've got nomadic pottery appearing, um, just like that. It's that close. Yeah, I mean, even even that that kind of the 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 sedentary and uh, and and nomadic intermixing. I mean, I, that kind of persisted down to I say modern day, like so, like even in early Soviet era, right? I mean, that that's uh, it's it's it's. Um, uh, yeah okay well, i'm getting ahead of myself but go ahead <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> uh, that's fine so it's funny you mentioned that the uh, the jowu clans um this is sort of the the chinese um creation myth of sogniana um apologies for the pronunciation by the way um but you're right there were nine of them um oddly not all of them are actually sogdian um there's a couple of different lists but uh you know a few lists i found uh they mentioned Samarkand, Bukhara, Choch, um, Maymur, Horpanjikant, Kabudan, Kushanya, and uh, Khwarazm, which is not Sogdian at all, but it's I suppose it's not too far away. Um, also, um, Kesh and Chach and a few other places. Um, now, the nine Jawu clans are supposed to have migrated from the western regions of China, from the Tarim Basin, west into Central Asia and Bactria. And this may be a reference back to the Kidarites. Um, in terms of the etymology, it's quite interesting. So Jawu may be a Sinicization of Siovash. And Siovash is a hero from the Shahnameh. And he's the Sogdian or the Iranian creation mythology to... Um, to the Sogdians. So the story goes, um, Siovash is a prince. He is a son of the Iranian king, um, Kavus. Um, and Kavus, his mother dies early in childhood. So he's raised by his stepmother, stepmother, who is the queen, uh, Kavus's um, wife. This is all mythology. This is not, this is not really happened. But anyway, um, now the queen, uh, she falls in love with Siovash and she hatches a number of elaborate schemes to try, um, to try bed him. Uh, Siovash is virtuous and he says no to every one of them. Uh, you get a massive schism between Siovash, the queen, and the king Kavus. Um, eventually, Siovash has to undergo an ordeal by fire where he rides through the fire. And if he's telling the truth, he ends out unscathed, which he does. Um, the queen is not too happy about this, um, but um, Siovash um, manages to convince Kavus not to execute her because he realizes that Kavus, not the most intelligent guy, not the best king. He's a little bit, you know, impetuous. If he executes his queen, he's going to just come around and blame Siovash later, and that'll cause him more problems. So what Siovash does is he uh, decides to go uh, northeast into Turan, um, leading a military expedition, but then he just stays there because you know, there's no false rape accusations in Turan. And now the king of Turan is called Afrosiob. He's the main bad guy in the in the early stories of the Shahnameh. He gives uh, Siovash, um, you know, an army and money, and, and he lets him go east to build a city, which is called Siovashgerd. Um, Siovashgerd may have been set in Khotan or around that area. Um, now what happens is one of um, Afrosiob's sons, Garcivaz, gets really jealous of Siovash and hatches a plot to have him killed, um, which, you know, happens. And that's the tragedy of, of Siovash. Um, Siovash's son, uh, he's called Kei Khosro. He manages to escape um, back to Iran, where he becomes the next king of Iran. Um, 
Siovash was a big deal in Sogdiana. And in Bukhara, in the ninth century, they held ritualized sort of mourning ceremonies um, where they sort of cut their face, tore their hair, and killed a cockerel in memory of Siovash. And this may or may not be sort of the roots of the Iranian festival Ashura, which is, again, it's a self-flagellation, self-mutilating mourning ritual. Um, I was just going to say that when I heard the part about cutting the faces. Um, that's that's amazing because um, it, it kind of ties together all the the Chinese historical records with, um, you know, with what we know. Uh, the Iranian mythology. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That, that's 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 amazing. Sorry. I'll go home, please. That's <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> fine. Uh, I mean, Siovash became a deity of uh, dying and regrowing vegetation in Central Asia, especially in Khwarazm. Um, the legend of his story in the Shahnameh goes that as he died, uh, drops of his blood spilled and a tree grew. And that's sort of, you know, this is where the vegetation limb comes in, um, essentially. Um, yeah, so that's the story of Siovash. Since you mentioned uh, Shahnameh, um, what we know as Shahnameh is, you know, collected and written by Ferdowsi, uh, you know, um, like what in a lot later, right? A lot later, yeah. It's the tenth and eleventh centuries. Yeah. Um, but the story of Shahnameh obviously is much, much older, right? It's a lot older. Um, so. The Shahnameh draws from a corpus of texts called the uh, Sistani Cycle of Epics, which were written during the probably the Indo-Parthian era, so 1st century BC, 1st century AD, that sort of time, in a place called Sistan, which is eastern Iran, kind of on the border with Afghanistan and Pakistan, that sort of area. And um, during this time, Sistan was ruled by an independent kingdom, maybe independent, we're not entirely sure, um, called the... Indo-Parthian kingdom, right? Um, and the Indo-Parthian kingdom was ruled by the house of Gondofaris or the house of Surina. Um, you may know this name from the Battle of Karai. Surina was a general from the house of Surin, based in Sistan. And they had a, a Parthian general that defeated uh, the a Roman the army Romans. led by, led by uh, none other than Crassius, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah, that's right. Um, he was probably a king of the House of Surin in the Indo-Parthian, um, Indo-Parthian lands, um, descended from a king called Gondofaris. Um, yeah, and the Sistani cycle of epics were written probably around this sort of time to try legitimize the um, Indo-Parthian kings, help sort of elaborate their relationship with the main Iranian power, the Parthians or the Arsacids, and also a couple of folktales in there as well, meant for downtrodden princes and random peasants and stuff. Um, but the, the cycles get picked up and they manage to survive through time. The main hero in the Shahnameh is called Rostam, and the name Rostam first appears in the second century in Greek Parthian texts, but it becomes a common name um, in Sasanian Iran in the 6th and 7th centuries. And the stories also make their appearance uh, in Sogdiana um, in the wall paintings of Panjikant. One of the most famous paintings of Panjikant is a story that involves Rostam. And it's Rostam, um, he's in Mazandaran, he's uh, fighting a king of a leader of a group of bandits called... Um, um, Called uh, called Aulad, um, 
eventually manages to wrest him over to his case. Then he goes and fights a, a witch and some demons and stuff. Um, so the Sogdians definitely knew about these stories and they painted it on their walls in their houses and palaces. Um, there's another Sogdian Shahnameh story uh, which details another character called Faramars, who is one of the sons of Rostam. And it's a story of how Faramars goes to India, defeats a dragon or demon, and then marries the princess of the king of India. Uh, this story doesn't actually appear in Ferdosi's Shahnameh, but it was clearly a part of the Sistani cycle of epics. It appears in another text called the Faramars Nome, um, which is how we've figured out what the paintings are, because they appear in the book, the Faramars Nome. So this just goes to show the deep uh, cultural connection between Sogdians and and Iran, right? I mean, there's a there's a very close knit relationship between uh, the ancient Persian civilization and and Sogdiana, right? Well, there's certainly a relationship, but in terms of how close it actually is. Um, Probably less close than we would think. Um, so certainly the Rostam story is Persian in origin. And we know this because the Sogdian word for Rostam is a Persian loan word. Um, it's not derived from an old Iranian um, common ancestor. It's literally a Persian loan word. And similar to a lot of the other Shahnameh heroes, they're Persian loan words. Um, but in terms of their other culture, mm, well, let's look at coins, for example. Um, Sasanian coins are very different from Sogdian coins. The Sogdians had an episode where they minted Sasanian imitations. They're called Peros imitations. Um, but really that faded out of fashion in the 6th and 7th centuries when the Chinese influence became a lot more predominant and they started making uh, cast copper coinage. Uh, Bukhara, of course, retained its Persian influence um, and they still minted the Peros imitations or called Bukhar Khuda coins. Uh, they minted these well into the 9th century, in fact. Um, in terms of architecture, Sasanian, Iran, and Sogdian are, are actually quite different. Um, the Persians followed a sort of circular town planning thing, whereas the Sogdians had a rectangular um, town planning system that harks back to Hellenistic times. Um, so Sogdian and Iran are similar in terms of their art, and this is probably the most studied bit of similarity. Um, if we look at the Sogdian wall paintings and compare them with a lot of Sasanian rock reliefs, we actually notice that they're quite similar in a lot of formulas in the way that people are posed and the way that people are depicted. Um, of course, proportions are different, colors different, material culture is different, obviously, but there's a lot of similar formulae there. And the current theory goes that um, Sogdians, Sogdian artists um, first traveled to Sasanian Iran to get inspiration for their art, and they might have used sort of master copies of master sketchbooks or something, uh, which they brought back to Sogdiana and started painting in Sasanian fashion. The earliest Sogdian paintings date from the 4th and 5th century, and they're from a place called Uchkulach, which is near Bukhara, which kind of makes sense because Bukhara is nearest Iran. And the Uchkulach paintings look a hell of a lot like Nagje Rostam and Bandion in their execution. There, you know, There's a jousting scene at Uchkulach, which could have been lifted straight out of Sasanian Iran um, if we didn't know better. It looks exactly the same. Um, and it kind of spread from there. Certain features get elaborated, certain features get shrunk. Um, of course, the realia or material culture uh, changes, but proportions, formulae, um, poses and things like that, postures, the way the horses are done, that's all very, very similar. And of course, you have these little symbolic things like halos and, and fars, which are 
little angels or something holding a, a set of streaming ribbons um, to indicate victory or, or sort of divine um, divine good graces. They're they're the same. Um, we see similar things on silverware as well, where Sasanian silver and Sogdian silver, they're similar. They're not completely similar, but they have common ancestry that we can clearly see in their Parthian, Kushan, and Achaemenid models. Um, religiously, they're also... Hmm? Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I was going to talk about Sog- uh, Sogdian religion. Um, oh, were you about please. to ask something? Oh, uh, no. I, 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 okay. I just had a thought bubble because I wanted to... Uh, I just thought about what is like, um, you know, modern legacy of Sog- Sogdiana. And I rem- uh, and I I'd, uh, remember because um, Sogdians are kind of uh, like the intermediary be- uh, for transmission of culture between East and West. Right. Like all these t- t- uh, all, this, all we're talking, we're talking about influence from Iran, from India, from China, and their uh, and Sogdian interaction with the steppe people. Uh, in particular, they um, like after the after collapse of Gokturk Empire, you know, the the um, Uyghurs uh, established a, a, a Uyghur Empire in in the Gok. Uh, Turks place in Mongolia so Sogdians start to um, you know maintain the similar type of uh, symbiotic relationship with the Uyghur empire and and what Sogdians did is they introduced um, the Sogdian script to the to the Uyghurs and and um, and and help the Uyghur fashion um, their own um, written language, the, the the old Uyghur script, and that script later was adopted by the Mongols. When when you know when the Mongols, uh, uh, when Genghis Khan um, unified all the Mongol tribes, he decided you know the Mongols need their own written language, and and the, you know Uyghurs just happened to be at the time uh, uh, the closest um, you know culturally close people who. Had a sedentary culture and a literary legacy, so so the Mongols borrowed the old Uyghur script, which was originally, uh, you know, based on the Sogdian script, which in turn was based on old um, uh, the uh, Aramaic, Aramaic yeah. script. Yeah, f- originated from <laughs> Mediterranean in, in Levant. So there was there's that cultural transmission from you know from Middle East all the way to Mongolia. And and the old Uyghur script became basically the traditional Mongol script that that's still in use today in uh you know in the Inner Mongolian region of China uh it's it's supposedly the official language of of Inner Mongolia and uh, and when the Manchu uh, came to power Manchu conquered China and Mongolia uh you know the Manchu ruler decided they needed their own written language and they adopted the mongol uh, script because you know the similarity between the mongols and manchu so so the manchu script you know today their manchu if you go to forbidden city you will see these manchu script on top of the you know, like building plaques and but their ultimate ancestor right it was it was sogdian script and and uh, the of course, yeah, the exactly. ultimate is is Aramaic, but but it was via the Sogdians that this transmission was made possible. It, it was indeed, and um, you can look at Sogdian and look at Mongolian or Manchu, and you can 
clearly see, okay, that letter is obviously that letter. That letter is obviously that letter. Um, there are some differences. Obviously, there's differences. It's a different language. But yeah, um, that alphabet ended up in Manchuria, of all places, um, after being ousted from Central Asia by the Arabs. Um, it's really cool to think about it that way. And it's in Beijing today. It's in forbidden cities there still. So, yeah. 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 So, okay. Start with my little diversion. <laughs> Please go on. <laughs> the Sogdian alphabet's really pretty. Um, I mean, I I put up a new piece of calligraphy every week on my blog, and it's it's mainly Sogdian. Um, there's also bits of Middle Persian and Parthian, but um, an astute viewer will be able to notice where you know where the links are between the three, where the links are between the, the Middle Persian or the Pahlavi, uh, the Parthian and the Sogdian, because ultimately they all come from Aramaic. And the similarities are even more obvious when um, when you're looking at third and fourth century Sogdian documents, because there they don't, they don't uh, join up the writing. That's, uh, that's done in print. You got to hook us up with some of these uh, images so we can post in them. Um post them for our our audience to see because this is like there's a lot of um like uh, visuals right like the, the the there's a lot of sogdian sogdiana art and and clothes and like they're just like fantastic you know very very exactly it, it's it's an art history art historians uh, art historian's dream or a fashion historian's dream it's uh, it's it's that it's it's very visual yeah i will definitely send you some writing samples and um yeah feel free to post them I mean that that's is that that that's how you got into uh, Sogdians, right? <laughs> this is, this is the, the, the visual the, side of things, exactly. Uh, can, can we talk about that yeah. a little bit? I, I, we kind of like skip over it because we 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 once wanted to give uh, people an intro of you know what Sogdian is and where it is and stuff like that. How how did you personally get uh, involved with uh, Sogdians? So, uh, a bit of a tangent, actually. Um, So, I started doing reenactment or living history of the Sasanian Persians. um, And there's a decent amount of Sasanian visual culture, but it's not like, you know, it's not amazing. There's not an amazing corpus. It's mainly um, black and white or, you know, gray or yellow, you know, rock reliefs and things or silverware. Um, But when you're studying the Sasanians, I remember this one book. It was the Montvert um, book by David Nicole on the Sasanian army. Um, it's a very good introduction if anyone's interested, but do not take it 100% um, accurately. It's not a scholarly book. It's just you know a nice one to look at. Anyway, there's a page in there about Sogdiana. And um, you know me being the sort of anally, slightly autistic person I am, I have to track down all the original pictures that uh, this guy's included in his book and so i I was googling sogdian painting i'm like oh my god these are amazing um so naturally you just kind of spiral from there um i got the book the next book i got was um otherpies sogdian painting um which has a very nice catalog of stuff in the back of it as long as well as how to read Sogdian paintings. And um, my gallery just kind of grew from there. Um, I got Boris Marshak's Sogdian Silver, which is a must-have. And there's an English section at the end as well, where so you don't have to run it all through Google Translate, which can be a chore. Um, yeah, and it down the rabbit hole we go, essentially. Um, that that brings me a, a, another question. So why is that the... Um... I mean, because because you know Sasanian uh, Persia was such an important empire. Um, why is that? I mean, like, and there's some amazing, amazing rock reliefs that that you know you people 
ever visit Iran, they, they should definitely see. But how come like there weren't as many like see the the, the kind of colorful colorful uh, mural wall paintings that that uh, like that we have in Sardiana? Is that is that just because like a survive like what what has survived or or you know what happened there? It it probably is a mixture of two things. First of all, sample size. Um, there are definitely Sasanian wall paintings, and a couple of notable ones come to mind are the ones at Hajiabad, which are third and fourth centuries, and the ones at Kuhikwaja, which are third century. So they exist. Um, stucco was more of a thing to the Persians than wall paintings was, especially in their palaces. So you got big stuccos from places like Tesiphon and 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 and. Um, and Rai, uh, which is Tehran, and those sorts of places. Um, but some of it is the democratization of art. So Sasanian art is there to represent the royal ideology and royal propaganda. And you can look, you can see this really obviously when you look at Sasanian rock reliefs. The king is in almost all of them. He is usually accompanied by a god. The god is often handing him a um, a far or a, like a victory ring. A, a sort of symbolic gesture of divine um, divine grace. Um, there are other nobility and stuff there. There's a queen that's often a defeated enemy. Um, and in all the Sasanian silver, we have kings hunting predominantly, uh, some religious scenes, but it is predominantly royal. Um, and this is because the Persians had a very strong idea of kingship that they needed to project to the outside world and also to the inside world. You had to make sure your court was in order as well. Um, the Sogdians didn't really have this. Um, now, first of all, Sogdian archaeology is leagues ahead of Sasanian archaeology, so we just have found more stuff. Um, but also, the way the Sogdian states were organized, you didn't really have a strong king. Sure, you had kings and city leaders, but they weren't divinely ordained, and they didn't have to project any sort of internal or external propaganda proclaiming them to sort of unify the the three kingdoms of the world. Uh, they didn't have a aggressive foreign policy like the Sasanians did. Um, and the, the Sogdian kings, the idea of kingship in Iran was very much, you know, I am, it, it's, it's a divine right sort of things. And you have to, um, the idea of the Sasanian kings was to reunite the three kingdoms that Feridun split his kingdom up into, you know, Iran, Rome, and Turan. Whereas the Sogdian kings, they were like, yeah, all right. I'll, I'll, let's have a banquet. Let, let's go hunting. Let's take life easy. Let's 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 be let's be rich and, and have a nice affluent life. Let's sitting in the garden doing not much. I, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm partial to that. <laughs> I mean, who who wouldn't be right? That, that's what we do in our living history group. We dress up in nice silks, wear pearls, and eat kebabs. You know, that that's the kind of life you want. You don't want to be out warring people because then you die. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and that's essentially it. Um, the other thing is that Sogdians were a very wealthy um, people and they had a lot of social mobility. Because it's a mercantile society, um, if you had the means to go out and earn wealth, you could do it. Whereas Sasanian, Sasanian Iran was a lot more rigid. So the Sogdians, you know, you'd have these merchants going up, setting up shop in China or Eastern Europe, coming back, you know, loaded. And they're like, yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll paint my house like a palace. I, I want to do that because I can afford to pay the painter. Um, <laughs> so it, it is democratized. Uh, there, there's a funny story about that, actually. So this is, this is my favorite story in all of Sogdian history. Um, so it's in the early 8th century, I believe. And the Arabs were... Um, 
the Arabs were sort of launching their, their first campaigns in the Sogdiana. And one of the first cities they encounter is Pekent, just because it's geographically the closest city to to it. And all the Sogdian men, they're all out on a trade mission to China, right? So the, the Arabs are like, hey, we, we get to walk in unopposed. And they, they, they sack the place and take slaves and, and, and whatever. Um, and they go back across the Oxus. And then the Sogdians come back from China. They're like, hey, where did our city go? This is, this is not great. Um, so they literally just buy the city back, buy back all the slaves from the Arabs and just rebuild the entire thing with the money that they've earned trading in China. Wow. <laughs> yeah, right. This these aren't kings. These are a bunch of ordinary um ordinary merchants just doing that. Yeah, and I see how that that kind of works out for the early Arab conquerors too cuz cuz initially when uh during the Arab conquest they they uh i mean partially it's because religion but also they're motivated for booty right for for loot and and like so so you know they they will be perfectly willing to uh take uh basically ransom right and 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 and, and give back territory for 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 a certain amount of ransom and 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 i get everybody's happy <laughs> in that. well not, I mean, everybody, not everybody but i mean <laughs> happier than you right. could have been yeah um i mean certainly the umayyad expansions into central asia were more to do were more economic than they were religious the religious conversion mass conversion thing doesn't really get in doesn't really start happening until the abbasid periods um, i mean sure the arabs would come into a city they'd say build a mosque pay us some money don't rebel and we'll leave you alone during the umayyad period and that's what happened in bukhara bukhara was allowed to keep its kingship um, up until they were ousted by the Salmonids in the ninth century, which is really quite late when you think that the Arabs had been, you know, raiding since the end of the seventh century. Um, that's two centuries of continued Bukharan kingship under the Arabs, and they were just left to it, right? Um, of course, if they rebelled, things wouldn't go quite as swimmingly. Samarkand uh, and Panjikant rebelled several times, but under the Umayyads, they never really fell to the proper Arab um, Arab rule. They still had Sogdian kings kind of semi-independent. It was just a case of, please stop rebelling. Just pay us your money. We'll leave you alone. Um, it was very much economical. And here's the thing. Um, if you converted everybody, you would get less tax revenue because the non-Muslims had to pay a slightly extra tax in the early Umayyad and Abbasid periods. So there wasn't that much financial incentive to convert a lot of people. Um, the Samanids uh, later on had a bit of an economic crisis when everybody mass converted and their tax revenues just plummeted. They're like, uh oh, this actually reminds me of an Arab account of uh, you know of the early Central Asian uh, conquest, and and it was uh, it was exactly the fact that everybody uh, converted or claimed conversion, right? And and you really exasperated the the Arab governor. Um, and and they they suspected and probably rightly so that a lot of the conversions fake, were yeah. fake, you know, for economic purposes, so they don't they don't have to pay pay taxes. And uh, so so they made a rule that okay, like um, so uh, okay, so if you if you if you you have not only you have uh, you know you you can't not only you, you you it's not enough to just claim that you converted, but we will check to make sure you are really converted. Meaning, like that they had 
circumcision. Yeah, circumcision. And then suddenly, (laughs) suddenly that, you know, nobody, nobody is is alerted anymore. Uh, That was just. Yeah, all of a sudden your tax revenues go right back right. up again because like, hey, no, we'll we'll we're we're, we're fine. Uh, we're not really converted, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so back to our. I mean, it, it's an interesting story. Um, th- sorry, this whole thing about er- the way early Islam spread is really quite interesting because, um, you know, we think of religions as discrete entities nowadays. You know, you have Islam and you have Christianity and you have, you know, whatever Hinduism, and they're all concrete blocks that do not overlap and do not interact um, unless it's often, you know, um, antagonistically. But that wasn't the case in the early medieval world. Um, I mentioned earlier you have Hindu deities and Iranian deities and Greek deities and Kushan coins. Um, Islam was able to weave itself into the um, late antique, early medieval fabric of the Near East and Central Asia really effortlessly because it was just easy to convert. you didn't require a massive change initially from your original customs. It was a very welcoming environment, um, and it absorbed quite a lot of things from, say, Zoroastrianism, for example. Yeah, I was actually surprised how late, uh, you know, Zoroastrianism survived in Central Asia uh, in some places that they, they like, that, I mean, it was really, uh, like, pretty late like the, the, the you know they had they had zoroastrianism and buddhism uh basically kind of uh um living on for 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 a long time <laughs> like not not it's not like right after the islamic conquest and everybody just became muslim and the whole society just become uh become islamic it's actually a, like a very mixed society for a good few hundred years uh, before. Exactly. Yeah. Um, exactly. There, there's a certain general of the Abbasids. He, he's the Afshin Haider of Osrishana. Um, he, uh, well, he's caught up in some sort of court intrigue, um, you know, with claims that he's a secret Zoroastrianism. And, uh, you know, the the Abbasids sort of raid his palace. They raid Osrishana. This is in the middle of the ninth century. So it's pretty late. And in this palace, they find all sorts of... Um, religious sculptures and statues they call them idols uh these were probably zoroastrian or buddhist um you know buddhist artworks so yeah they're not islamic for a while and they're not really majority muslim until the samanids and even then it's just the city folk it's not the nomads which you're looking at almost a millennium later to be honest yes yes i mean like even the um you know the, the the turks they didn't adopt uh uh, uh, Islam a bit later, you know, they, they it's only when they they the Turks themselves got influenced by the Salmanids, they they start adopting Islam, but it's still like tribe by tribe basis. It, it wasn't like, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you, I mean, like, uh, basically, there were still Kyrgyz who were, uh, basically shamanistic up till. Um, I think uh, probably still nowadays, to be honest. <laughs> but but definitely up. I mean, to, let's be real. Up to right, right, but 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 definitely up to your nine, uh, uh, 18th century. Definitely mid mid 18th century, because um, that's when the the Qin the the Manchu uh Qin Empire start to expand into Central Asia, and they had to defeat a. Uh, 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 one of the last uh, Central Asian empire, the Drongars, and and 
And as part of the Zhuanggar Confederation, right, there are some Tuvans and Kyrgyz. So they were captured by the by the Qin army and got sent back to Manchuria. And and except like so these people, you know, the descendant of these uh, Kyrgyz captives, they still live in Manchuria today, except they were never um they were never converted to, to Islam. They were, they were, <laughs> yeah. they were too shamanistic. You know, they, 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 this was pretty late. This is like mid uh, 19th, 18th century, like what we're talking about, 1750s, 1760s. Um, so, but, but, you know, like, like uh, there, there was a story. Um, so right after uh, World War II, 1940, well, at the end of World War II, 1945, when the Soviet Union launched the August storm, to invade uh, Japanese occupied Manchuria, and there was a, a, a Red Army soldier, a Kyrgyz from Central Asia, and and when he arrived in Manchuria tra- uh, train station, he was sh- somehow he was shocked to to meet someone who speak his mother tongue like Kyrgyz. Um, uh, but 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 this is but this guy is not from Manchuria. In fact, this guy was li- his family lived in Manchuria for like three, four hundred years. <laughs> oh, wow. That's such a cool story. Yeah. Oh, well. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, 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 so it's pretty good. So anyway, that we, we got sidetracked again. <laughs> Let's get it's the, the, the world's biggest tangent. Yeah. I've forgotten where we were. Even. Uh, oh, so question. you were talking about, so we, we kind of talk about the relationship between um, the, the, the Sasanians and the, the uh, oh and the, the Sogdian. Sogdian. and you yeah. were about to talk about the Sogdian religion. سیلوب چه شوم سیلوب چه شوم مرغب و انصاب بگیرم ای بای بچه شوم دختر یغنا بگیرم ای بای بچه شوم Shirobi, and I should all be the Lord, Shashima Shirobi, and I should all be the Lord, Shashima Shirobi. 